Hello everyone. Welcome to Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime, and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I'd like to welcome you and thank you for taking time out to listen today. Just to give a little bit of information, um, I had intended to have this particular episode number be one about an aviation incident, but as there has been a recent um, aviation accident where over 100 people lost their lives, I did want to hold off on doing that particular episode. So I did move one up that while one part of the story has been in the national news quite recently, the other hasn't. Um, We'll be reviewing actually two cases in kind of a comparison um, to see what led to certain events as they occurred in both cases. Um, I went down kind of the proverbial rabbit hole thinking it would be maybe a one hour long episode, but actually it is probably going to be quite a bit longer. So just up front, I will let you know this will be a two part episode When I do multiple parts, I usually try to record everything at the same time. Then I'll go back and edit the first half and put that out as an episode and then work on editing that second half. So it does come out um, much more quickly or much faster than, you know, a completely new episode would. It's just I don't want to have a two or three hour episode where you know you may have to stop and stop. I'm sorry, start and stop multiple times. But I also don't want there to be a two or three week gap between the two um, different episodes. Also, with any ongoing litigation that may be referenced in this episode and part two, the accusations are all alleged. If it has not gone to court yet and there's not been a confession or a trial with a definitive verdict, then we do give everybody the presumption of innocence and just look at the information as we have it now. And while I will discuss aspects about making judgments from information provided that may not be complete, especially in the second episode, I do just want to make sure that it is clear that at this point the accusations are alleged because after going through these cases, a major part of my thought process in these is no matter what, we still need to give a victim or potential victim the right to be believed until there is definitive proof that shows that he or she is not telling the truth. Now, secondly, I do just want to mention, in case anybody is interested, um, the television show Buried in the Backyard um, appears on the Oxygen Network. In October of last year, I received an email asking if I would do an in-person interview about a case that happened in my area. Um, I was not able to discuss anything regarding the case until the episode actually aired, but it did air. Um, It is season four, episode 12 of Buried in the Backyard, titled Family Affair, just in case anybody is interested. 
lastly, if you do like this type of content and want to see the channel grow, um, if you do listen um, on a podcast app and that app does allow you to leave feedback or rate an episode or podcast or leave comments, um, subscribe, anything like that, it does help the podcast be more easily found by bringing it higher into the search engine when people look for certain keywords. I don't know too much about all of the algorithms and how they work those, but it does help more people see the podcast. Also, I do upload the audio to YouTube um, because I know myself, I sometimes like to just have that TV on seeing you know, just anything in the background and hearing anything in the background. Um, so it is uploaded, but YouTube is very sensitive to certain words. So there is a word, um, sexual assault for, you know, that's used for sexual assault. Um, but I will be saying S A as an abbreviation. Um, there may be a few other words that I may have to abbreviate because of that. I don't want an episode kicked off YouTube because of some words that they don't like being used, even though honestly, YouTube is not really my biggest platform. Actually, I don't have a big platform at this point. Um, but, you know, if there's any way to get information and these stories um, out there, then I do like to look at all of the avenues. Just a couple quick notes. All of my resources will be linked into the description of the episode um, for the second incident that I'll be covering. While I did confirm information through a couple of different articles or information sites regarding the case, there was one particular article that really broke down the timeline as well. So even though information from other sources will be used one from ABC7 does actually give a timeline that I will be relying heavily upon as honestly that's one of the best timelines and breakdown of information that I've seen on anything that I've researched so far. Contact information if you do have any um, suggestions on cases will be also linked in the description of the episode. And one last thing, I do need to give a disclaimer that as with many of the cases, if not all that I cover, there will be discussions of death, violence, assault, sometimes self-harm, just unfortunately negative things. But we do tend to learn more from these events and so a lot of times these are the types of events that are covered. So that's kind of a disclaimer to let you know that, you know, if you might find any of these topics distressing, I don't want anybody to, you know, not be aware of that before we start the podcast, um, you know, because I want everybody to feel comfortable when listening. So now, as this will be quite the length, lengthy um, episodes, um, let's get into it and discuss cases where victims are not believed. We will be looking at two different cases where 
the reaction of law enforcement was different, as well as the outcome that we're seeing if all of the information that's been provided is true, then it leads us to doubt an alleged victim's trauma, which is very, very difficult to hear about because then that cast out on victims who do come forward. And that is one of the most heinous things that can happen. So you've been a victim of a crime. You've been traumatized, fearing for your life, maybe your family's life too. And when you finally emerge from this horrific situation, law enforcement doesn't believe you. You feel alone, abandoned, mistrustful, and betrayed. You know what happened. Your loved ones know what happened. But the police continue to investigate and even declare that your kidnapping was a hoax. What do you say and do? And so that you know from the beginning here, this episode will cover parts of the Sherry Papini case. And though if the allegations against Sherry Papini are true, it does pay me to a certain extent to cover her case because of the impact that it can have on others. Plus, it's actually giving her some attention. And if the allegations are true, it's probably it's helping her get what she wants. But we don't know that now for sure, as it's not gone to trial and there has been no confession. So I will need to cover details of this story as a comparison tool about the story of another couple of Denise Huskins and her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn. I feel that to see these two stories back to back, we can see the problem with not believing some survivors and the importance of making sure that law enforcement turns every stone, looks in any little hiding spot just to make sure that the truth and the whole truth has come to light. So we will do a summary of what happened to Sherry Papini and all of the current events surrounding that to the point and up to the recording of this episode. It will take a while to go through all of the details, but once that's all done, I do want to spend more time on the second case of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. So to summarize the Papini case, this was originally in the news in November of 2016. And we've seen this or heard this many times. A mother goes missing and of course, people start looking at their loved ones, the husband especially. And while we're watching the news unravel, we have to keep reminding ourselves that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And initially in these types of crimes, many of us automatically assume it's the spouse or significant other. And percentage-wise, looking at it, that most likely will be true in a vast majority of cases. And with the Papini case, many of us watched the story develop and, as with many people, hoped that this young, vivacious mother could be found alive 
and be reunited with her distraught husband and her children. Sherry Papini was living with her husband, Keith, with two children. She was a stay-at-home mom with two kids. Now, I've heard and seen a couple of different ways that this was described. Um, Most of the information says that the the children were in daycare. I have one um, source that said it was dance class, but based on everything, I'm hearing daycare. And this has been brought up also as a key because they weren't in daycare for that long when this event happened. But that daycare does play a role in at least the timeline of events that were given. So Sherry set out for her run and her husband Keith got home from his job at Best Buy to find that Sherry and the kids were not home. But her car was there and the kids should have been picked up by that point. He tried to find Sherry, but when he could not, he used his wife's um, Find My iPhone app to locate where that phone was. He found her phone and earbuds about a mile away from his house. And, you know, he took a picture before he picked them up, but he did pick up the phone and there was some hair, um, blonde hair, which is the color that you know, Sherry's hair was with her items. And I do want to apologize. A moment ago, I said that I'd seen that they were in dance class in just the one article, but actually it was piano class. So I apologize for that, for misspeaking. These events took place near the Papini home in Redding, California. And it was so close to Thanksgiving that this family was most likely going to need to go through the holiday without their mother around or their wife. The 911 call does say daycare, so definitely I'm listening to that. Um, Many of you may have heard the 911 call already, but I will play it so that you can hear some of the detail that Keith is giving and see if you find the call odd or you know if you think it's a you know perfectly reasonable response when you find a spouse missing and also to note we never know how we may act ourselves in an emergency so we do have to look at the content or listen to the content of the call but i am a very forgiving person when people say oh, well, they're not acting like someone who's grieving. I personally believe that you can't judge one person by what another person may have done in that situation. So I myself probably would focus less on emotion and things like that that are emitted in the phone call, but focus more on actually what is said. I have tried to get the best quality, which can be a little difficult when obtaining that audio from something else, but here goes. Peace is on the line. Hello, can I help you? Oh. Yeah, um, so uh, I just got home from work and uh, my wife wasn't there, which is unusual, and my kids should have been there by now for like daycare. So I was like, oh, maybe she went on a walk. Um, I couldn't find her, so I called the, the daycare to see what time she picked up the kids. The kids were never picked up, 
So I got freaked out, so I hit, like, the Find My iPhone app thing. And it said that her, it showed her phone, like, at our end of our driveway. We don't have really good service. Okay. Uh, not the end of our driveway, but the end of our street. But just drove down there, and I saw her phone with her headphones because she started running again. And it's, I found her phone, and it's got, like, hair ripped out of it, like, in the headphones. So I'm, like, totally freaking out, thinking, like, somebody, like, okay, what's your, grabbed her. Okay, what's your address? Reading. What, okay, what's your last name? Yes. Papini, P-A-P-I-N-I. And your first name? Uh, Keith. K-E-I-T-H? Uh, yes. Okay. Did you go pick up your children? No, I'm going to call my mom and have her do it. Okay. okay. What's your wife's name? I'm going to, like, knock on every door. Uh, Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I. And same last name? Yes. Is she white female? Yes. What's her date of birth? Uh, it is uh, June 11th, 1982. Is her vehicle there? Does she not have a vehicle? She has a vehicle. Is that the house? Okay, the vehicle yeah, is at the house. She's running. How? Okay. Yes, I'm How? in it right now, driving, and I took a picture of her phone on the ground before I picked it up. Okay, how tall is she? Five, three, five, four. How much does she weigh? Hundred pounds. Eye color? Uh... Like a bluish blue. Okay, hair color? Blonde. Do you know what she was wearing? Is there no something idea. she always wears? I'm assuming she went running. So okay, is there... Athletic type okay, there's not an outfit she always wears or anything like that. Does she run with a dog or by herself? By herself. Okay. What time were the kids... We just start running again, and we live in a... When's the last time... When's the last time you heard from her? Uh, she sent me a text asking me if I was coming home for lunch. Uh, what time was that? Um, uh, I want to give me one second. She sent me a text at 10.47 asking me if I was coming home for lunch from work. And I said, sorry, long day. And that was the last. Never spoke to her on the phone, never any other contact. Okay, and what time are the kids supposed to be picked up? Way before 5.30 to usually go to like 4.45. Okay. 4.30, 4.45. Okay, are you headed back to the house or where are you at right now? I'm at the end of the driveway where, uh, I'm at the Old Oregon Trail and Sunrise where they meet, because that's right where I found her phone on the ground. You're telling me that something happened to her is the way I'm looking at it. There's like, then there was hair like in the headphones. Like it got ripped off and like big grab. Yeah, no, I, un I understand, I understand. Okay, I'm sorry. I know it's you're okay. trying to keep me calm, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of vehicle are you in? I'm in a black Kia Optima. Oh, my God. Okay. And I live, I mean, we live down kind of a sketchy street, so I'm yeah. definitely, I don't know if I'm allowed to knock on everybody's door, but I will if I'm allowed to do that. Well, let's just have the officers contact you so they can start, you know, processing everything, figure out what's going on, okay? I understand you're freaking out a little bit. We want to we want to make sure we get your kids, make sure they're okay. Obviously yeah, I'm gonna call my mom stuck. and have her. Yeah, they've been stuck. Your phone number. 
Yes. Do you want me to wait right here for somebody? If, or? if you want to head back to your residence so they can contact you there and in case she does return. Okay. Okay. While well, I'm contacting okay. your residence. Call us back if anything changes, all right? All right, so they're going to call the number you took down the 355. They'll probably call you when they're on their way and they're going to come out in person. Okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, bye. Bye bye. So, we do hear that Keith is, you know, of course, agitated. He sounds concerned. He also, though, does give a lot of information. I don't know, though, if he's giving a lot of information because he is nervous and, you know, he just doesn't know what to say. Most people don't have to make 911 calls like this, so there's not really a script that anybody's going to follow. Um, I did find it a little unusual as far as the content of the call that he didn't start right off with saying, I can't find my wife. And then maybe explain the reasons why he is so concerned so that the operator does understand it's out of the ordinary. There were other factors in there, such as the hair with the, the earbuds or the headphones, you know, that would cause concern. But it took a while to get to that point. That was one of my main takeaways from the phone call is that, you know, he took so long to get to the point that his wife was missing. And so once the police did start looking into the case, Keith, of course, was suspect number one or person of interest. And we always know the significant other is usually the first suspect he or she would need to be ruled out in any case. And at least as far as him having had anything physically to do with the kidnapping of his wife or disappearance of his wife, he did have an alibi, which was his work. Now, the media did swoon down upon the Papini home. They're trying to get a statement and to spread the word that this 34-year-old picture-perfect woman Sherry Papini was missing with only her phone and earbuds left behind. And I'm sorry, I call them earbuds. They were described as headphones, but I guess it's just what I use more often. Um, and besides that phone and headphones, she left behind her two children at daycare, not picked up at the time they normally would be. Now, this can bring out the best in most people but the worst in some. So while people were ready to donate time to search for her or money, feeling for this young family and for this woman who was missing, who knows if she's been injured or killed or being held and going through who knows what type of just untold horrors. People were donating money to try to you know, locate or use private investigators that might be able to use other resources to locate Sherry. So there was an outpouring from the community on trying to have this family reunited. Now, there were others who tried to cash in for themselves. I will not give this person notoriety by saying his name, but a self-professed hostage negotiator stated that an anonymous multimillionaire contracted him to work on the case. This was done again under a cloud of anonymity and this supposed negotiator 
who, according to other reports, greatly exaggerated his accolades and abilities and, well, almost everything, he did speak to the media and he did many things that most hostage negotiators would find dangerous. He gave a deadline as far as returning Sherry. The benefactor had given him $50,000 to give to whoever would turn Sherry over. No questions asked. All in cash. Deadlines can make captors very, very nervous. Going back to the professional investigators, supposedly, one of the very first things that the police did was review her phone. And while going through her contacts and trying to contact them, they did find that Sherry had saved the names of two men under the names of women. So, you know, she has somebody listed under the name of Samantha. Just giving an example here. Don't know if that's what it was saved under. But in reality, it's someone named Steve. We don't know. But still, you see the, the example or what she did there. Um, one of the men actually lived in Michigan, and he had traveled to California the same day that Sherry went missing. Police did visit him in Michigan, and while he did travel to California, he did not meet with Sherry like he was supposed to. Now, miraculously, on Thanksgiving Day, 22 days after going missing, Sherry was found on a road with a chain around her waist, looking scared, confused, and noticeably thinner. She had lost about 15 pounds, now weighing only 87 pounds. She had bruises, her hair had been chopped, for lack of any better terminology there, and most odd, she had a brand that had been burned into the back of her shoulder. In a call that Keith may have been losing hope of ever receiving, he was told that his wife was alive. The police had found things somewhat bizarre from the beginning. The first red flag was the phone and the earbuds. So Keith said that there was hair um, on the earphones, but the police said it looked like the phone, the earphones, and the hair were just kind of placed there. They weren't tossed by an abductor or dropped by a woman fighting for her life. Now, we also do have to remember Keith did move the phone but he did take a picture first. The police, while releasing some information, did keep some things close to the vest, stating that Sherry had said that two females had abducted her in a dark-colored dark SUV, and they did have a handgun. She did say that these were Hispanic women, and it did, though, take a while to actually get any type of sketch or you know, better description of what these two captors may have looked like. Now, the police at this point had acted on about 20 search warrants, and they explored a number of different avenues, such as electronic records and bank account information. And just looking at that from an outsider, if I had read that originally, I would be wondering what was in all of the 20 search warrants. How many electronics, phones, bank accounts did they have? Did they have a different search warrant for each item? Could more than one item be on a warrant? So while 20 may sound like a pretty high number, it could have been broken down in so many different ways that we really don't have what that covers. Um, it could be 
you know, 20 warrants, but some for her husband, Keith, some for close family members, for herself. You know, it's hard to say what was covered individually. Um, so theoretically, it may not even be that large of a number. Now, of course, if it, multiple things were listed on the warrants, you know, 20 could be a really, really high number. Another note, though, is that 12 search warrants were served in Michigan. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But along with the 20 that we already know, I don't know if the 12 in Michigan were included in that number of 20. Now, law enforcement said Keith Papini was forthcoming and cooperative. He did take a lie detector test, which, keep in mind, is not admissible in court, but he did pass the test. As polygraphs are not 100% reliable, a positive or negative finding cannot definitively tell police if a person was or was not involved in a crime, but it can be used as a tool to help narrow suspects down or to lead them in a different direction. Police were less than thrilled though with Keith's communication with the media, hypothesizing that something Keith said may lead to a compromised investigation, and that's not necessarily unheard of. But with Sherry's return, her perceived lack of cooperation was even more bizarre. Discussing any trauma can be and is oftentimes distressing, emotional, and traumatic in itself. But she really didn't want to talk to police, but at times she was kind of contradictory as well, giving them information and then saying she didn't want to talk to them. Now, an important note right here is that Sherry denied any assault, and this is where I'm using the abbreviation of SA, during her captivity but there was male DNA found in her underwear. It was not Keith's. Now, all of her clothes that she had been wearing when she went missing had been switched out. Um, she was wearing totally different clothes except for her underwear. And frankly, you know, I have some questions about this, especially as she was supposedly being held captive by other women and some women out there may have the same questions that I'm having about that. I will not get too much into detail as it's not going to directly affect the allegations that have been made towards Sherry, but asking certain questions can lead to more answers than you may have ever thought. Just kind of a side note there. So as I said before, it would be months before Sherry actually provided a detailed description to have sketches made of her captors. Now, yes, they did have bandanas covering half their face, but she did describe them as Hispanic with an older one and a younger one. Also, the older one was bigger than the younger one. Um, she had been locked in a closet, she said, with a bucket to use as a restroom. And Sherry admitted that she asked for kitty litter to be brought to her to use, and they did give it to her. She also says they beat her, and why she, while she couldn't understand what they discussed amongst themselves because of a language barrier, she had been told that they were trying to sell her into trafficking. Um, she had indicated also that the abductors told her 
the police were involved. And I have to wonder if Sherry used this as a, a reason to say she didn't want to speak with investigators. That's just a thought that I had, it, at least in any of the resources that I found it wasn't mentioned, but that's just you know, where my mind kind of went as far as what she could say in regards to speaking with the investigators. And after a while, Sherry Papini's case just kind of faded into the background, only covered occasionally by YouTubers or podcasters, you know, just retelling of the case. But the police didn't stop. They interviewed people, and they had already interviewed the man from Michigan who ended up not meeting with Sherry after he flew across the country to meet with her. Reviewing some of the things that Sherry said when she did talk to the police was saying things such as she pulled out some of her, quote, signature blonde hair, end quote, to leave with her um, belongings, the iPhone and the earbuds. What I just found is why she called it a signature blonde, but okay. Um, she also brought up her breast augmentation a number of times. So while it may have been important to some degree, you know, such as, you know, they asked if she normally jogged that time of day. I know that from other reports, she had just resumed jogging. So for her to say something like she hadn't been jogging for a couple of weeks because of the breast augmentation, okay. But they said that she actually kept bringing it up. And there was also inconsistencies in what she said, or at least I will say logical inconsistencies. She talked about how her hands were zip tied behind her, yet, you know, in the same, you know, statement, she talked about how she was able to get her zip tied hands over her knees. And that would seem a little difficult. I am trying to picture it. And she was quite a small woman. You know, after losing the 15 pounds, she was still at only 87 pounds, putting her, you know, far less than 110 pounds um, originally. But she also mentioned that she and her husband had watched a YouTube video on how to get out of those restraints. So she thought that it helped. You know, again, okay, I, I haven't really watched anything like that, but some people may. So that's why it's out there. It's on a YouTube channel because some people do want to say things like that. Now, going back to some of Sherry's history, which will be a factor in what's about to happen. It's been reported that Sherry did suffer from mental illness. Now, just because we're bringing up mental illness, there should be no stigma attached to that. A mental illness is an illness and needs to be treated appropriately but this could be a factor and had been factors or had been a factor in how she had behaved in the past. Um, Sherry's mother at one point when Sherry was around 21 years old called 911. Sherry was trying to harm herself and in some of the sources that I've reviewed her mother said that while she was trying to harm herself, she had indicated she would blame it on her mother. 
So doing self-harm but blaming someone else. Um, Sherry's sister also said that Sherry once kicked in a door and her father said that she had vandalized his home at some point. So were any of these a direct factor in the abduction case? No, but it does show behavior that Sherry had exhibited in the past. And most notably, at least if I were comparing things, the fact that she was harming herself, but then threatened to blame it on someone else, in this case, her mother. So also, you know, I've mentioned the man from Michigan. There was a second man, just known as Man 2, and this is a quote of how he described Sherry. As, quote, an attention-hungry person who told stories to try to get people's attention, end quote. He um, said that he knew of stories that were made up about abuse that supposedly had happened to Sherry that were perpetrated by her family. The two had met through a youth program, and actually the organizer of that program had insight into Sherry's behavior. He said, quote, that Sherry, Sherry was good at creating different realities for people so that they would see what she wanted them to see, which got her really good attention, end quote. I've also seen through multiple articles that they were, quote, in fear of her. So that takes a lot for a group to say they were in fear of her. Um, it may mean that they were unsure of what her next steps or moods, um, you know, what might she do next that they might get drawn into and possibly even accused of something. And what's so important in this case is that the police never stopped looking for answers. Now, yes, they had their doubts about Sherry's story, but also, what if there really was a kidnapper out there who grabbed a jogger? They needed to make sure that if it was, in fact, a true case of abduction, that those who were responsible were brought to justice, period. But what they found ended up confirming some of their original instincts. See, they kept looking at things. They looked at the underwear that she had been wearing apparently for three weeks. And they had that male DNA that did not belong to her husband. So in 2020, they were able to match DNA that led to one of Sherry Papini's ex-boyfriends. So this was not a direct match to him, but it was more of a genetic mapping that led to him, but it was one of her ex-boyfriends who lived, um, you know, hundreds of miles away from Redding, California. But pretty quickly, he did crack and tell the police that he did help Sherry Papini fake the kidnapping. Over the course of time, she had reconnected with him. Um, he had described it as finding some of her stuff um, while, you know, cleaning out some things. And since it had been a while since they'd broken up, he figured it was an okay time to go and reach out to her. 
He was able to reach out to her family who gave him information and it just kind of went from there. Um, Papini would allegedly, and again, we are looking at allegedly at this point, um, tell him that she was being abused. And so he thought that he was helping her. Um, he picked up Papini. She stayed with him through every day that she was missing. Um, they stated that she did sleep in the bed while he slept on the couch. She refused to eat, even though he was concerned about her. She wanted him to hurt her, but he did decline that, but she did injuries to herself. Um, and then also, though, he did help in the implementation of the brand. It was a brand on her, the back of her shoulder that referred to a Bible verse, and he did help her with that. So, you know, that's kind of a big thing to help her with. And, you know, the thing is, she couldn't go out. She had to stay inside, basically, for that whole time because her picture was all over the news. And, you know, I... I know at some point he had to be looking at that. Well, I guess I can't say no, but I have a very strong suspicion that as he's looking at that, he's thinking, what have I gotten myself into? How am I going to get out of this? And realizing that no matter what he did, if he brought this to the attention of the police, he would most likely be arrested as an accomplice. So he said nothing until the police approached him. Now, at the age of 39, Sherry has been arrested. Her family seems to be rallying around her, covering her face as she goes to and from court appearances, slamming those who criticize her, comma, which I find kind of confusing, too, as each of the closest members of her family have said that she you know was violent towards them at times her mother with though not directly being violent towards the mother she was hurting herself to the point that the mother called emergency services kicking in a back door and vandalizing things these are not you know non-violent minor offenses so the same family who has witnessed these things in the past is now being judgmental towards anybody who alleges that she acted as a hoax. So time will tell what type of punishment, if any, Sherry will receive. She took away resources from people who may have been victims of actual crimes. Additionally, she also used about $30,000 from a state victims fund to help pay for counseling and the like. There was also a lot of money that was donated to a GoFundMe that would be for, you know, trying to, you know, locate her for private investigation. But none of that money was ever returned to the donors after she was in fact found. However, family credit cards got paid off, including those that were used towards the breast augmentation. Some people do also question why the children were in daycare if Sherry was a stay-at-home mom and her husband worked at Best Buy. 
Now, unless you are pretty high up the chain in Best Buy, I cannot imagine that one can make enough money to keep a household running, have another person you know, beside your children that you pay for everything for, um, you know, even just basic things like utilities, but then you add in daycare and you add in a breast augmentation, how are they paying for that? So the approximate $50,000 that they received by donations was used for personal bills, not for, you know, even things like additional counseling or, you know, other things that may have been needed for someone who has gone through this traumatic event. So what happens will you know, take place through the media, through the court system, and until we have an answer, again, I do want to emphasize how important it is to try to keep an open mind in that you know, we need to presume innocence until guilt is proven because by not doing so, you open up floodgates so that all innocent people are looked at as guilty before it's proven. But now we have background on Sherry Papini and her case. And of course, we'll be watching it to see what unfolds in the coming weeks or months. But with the Sherry Papini case dominating headlines, sometimes truth can be lost. If someone were to have something similar happen to them, would anybody truly believe it? And this leads us to another case. And this case happened before Sherry Papini's case actually took place. Um, and it did take place in a different part of California. The thoughts, motives, and repercussions of the police claiming that there was a hoax about a kidnapping shows the importance that police need to take every case seriously, not make any public statements about someone's guilt before it's confirmed, and that a thin line that falls between gun instinct and fact needs to be recognized. Now, as I will be breaking this into at least two episodes, hopefully I will not go into three, but I will you know, give you know, some of the background information on the next case that we'll be talking about. Um, and then once we get past that, that's where I'll stop and we'll you know, have another episode out to continue the case. Now, I will admit that when I started to hear about this second case, that I'm discussing. It actually happened before Sherry Papini's case, but I actually thought it was a discussion of the same case. Um, it was in California, just, you know, a quick glance at the person is they both have, um, the woman has blonde hair, so they both have blonde hair. It was another couple involved, so you have Keith and Sherry, and now we have Aaron Quinn and Denise Huskins whose lives were torn apart in a matter of a night. And while they should have been working on getting their lives back on track after resolution, comma, nothing happened the way that anybody could foresee. So this took place in Vallejo, California. 
it was March 2015, and Aaron Quinn and Denise Huskins were at Aaron's house. Now, their relationship had hit a point where they were going to need to decide whether or not they wanted to continue in that relationship. Huskins had found out that Quinn had been texting an ex-fiancé. Now, this ex-fiancé and Aaron's relationship did not end on a great note, but we really don't know why they were texting, but they were. But this you know, led to Denise standing up for herself, and rightfully so, to say they needed to decide what they were going to do going forward in their relationship. And while I'm sure that the conversations from that night had been an emotional struggle, as, you know, with many serious relationships, Huskins said later that it felt like a fresh start when they finally went to bed. But little did they know that the choices they made that night about their relationship would indirectly lead to some very traumatic and troubling events that would impact their life, not only in their relationship, but their life in general. What was about to occur would leave scars, both physical and emotional, and cause trauma that will last a lifetime. This couple was held hostage with, again, the use of zip, zip ties, which we saw in Sherry Papini's case, and these zip ties were used to bind them and Aaron being shoved, shoved into a closet, and they were blindfolded with something that was very interesting, goggles with the lenses blacked out, and the bizarre chain of events continued. The attackers used pre-recorded messages to communicate through headphones that had been placed over the couple's ears. The message said that they would be given a sedative, and if they refused then they would be given to him as a shot. The message did use Aaron's name, so this was not a case of mistaken identity, possibly, or a random burglary. This was targeted and planned. The people who attacked them had this fantastical story that you usually only see on TV or in the movies. The attackers were, and I quote from what they had said, um, and this is from a People article, that they were, quote, from a well-organized, highly trained group that collected financial debt. Denise would be kidnapped and returned within 48 hours if Aaron paid the ransom, end quote. Now, while Aaron was shoved into the closet, one of the intruders was asking questions, but that may have been because they realized something was not quite right. Remember that ex-fiancé I was talking about that Aaron had? The intruder asked at one point um, and also states that they had a problem. He asked Aaron if Denise and the ex-fiancé looked alike. Now, remember, they were at Aaron's house, not Denise's. And Aaron answered, yes, you know, maybe they, they did both have long blonde hair, and the intruder's response was that they had the, quote, wrong intel. So the house that the intruders went into was probably the right house, knowing Aaron by name, but it had once been shared with that ex-fiancé. 
the one that had brought Denise there that night so that they could discuss the relationship and how they were going to get past Aaron reconnecting with that ex-fiance. And that woman had also had some of her belongings stored at the house until just pretty recently. So if someone was looking at intel, it's possible they could have followed her to that house. So having to kind of work on the fly here, the kidnappers told Aaron that um, Aaron and Denise that they were going to take Denise for 48 hours and they were going to give Aaron some things that he needed to complete. Aaron was then taken from the closet, taken downstairs to a couch, and they marked an area out with duct tape that was a square. Um, they then used duct tape as bindings as well, but the kidnappers asked Quinn if he was comfortable. He also was advised, though, that there would be cameras that would be watching him. So again, improvising, the kidnappers told Aaron that he would have to call out to work and to text out from work for Denise. They also wanted him to withdraw money from the bank, and he was advised that those cameras would be monitoring him in everything that he did. And as we've seen and heard on so many TV shows or books about crime, they, were t they told him not to go to the police because if they did, Denise would be killed. So they then took Denise and left. And even though Aaron Quinn was pretty quickly able to get the goggles off his eyes, he soon felt the effects of the drugs that he had been given. Now, a lot of this time had passed, and I'm sure it went so fast, yet agonizingly slow at the same time. It was now 5 a.m., and with the drugs now fully kicked in, he was no longer able to keep his eyes open. When he was next awake, he was still feeling the effects of the drugs, and he was able, though, to call out of work for both himself and for Denise but he fell back asleep and did not wake again until 11.30, which was about six hours after Denise had been taken from the household. Now, during the kidnapping, the intruders had said that they would reach out to him via text and an email that they had set up for the kidnapping. When Aaron Quinn was finally able to get to those texts and emails, he saw that they wanted two payments of $8,500. Now, this is just kind of my two cents here. Yes, $8,500 is a lot of money. It's huge to people. It's, it's a huge amount for me. But if you look at the terms of a kidnapping, of the potential of going to prison for a very, very, very long time, two payments of $8,500 is not that much money. You're risking spending decades in jail, possibly, for around $17,000. And if there's more than one person involved in the kidnapping, that's going to have to be split. So I'm also thinking if it's true that they collect financial debt, how much was that debt if they're only asking for $17,000? I then kind of have to look at the other side of it thinking, okay, it sounds like they got the wrong person, but they couldn't just leave with no leverage, so they took Denise, but still asked for a ransom. 
So there's a lot of things going on there that looking at it from an outsider does not make sense. However, we cannot be in the mind of some people who commit actions like that. I mean, frankly, I probably wouldn't know even how to start or think about starting anything like this. It's, it's something most people don't really sit down and think about at random. Yes, looking at this now, having it as part of a story, I will think about it. But I'm not, and I really doubt anybody else in this audience is ever going to sit down and try to contemplate what they need to do to commit a crime like this. But back to what Aaron was needing to do. Um, he was scared. He had been told that cameras would be watching him and not to call 911. But, however, in another case where I'm going to think the intruders were not quite as prepared as they thought they were, you know, such as not realizing that Aaron's brother was an FBI agent. So, you wouldn't necessarily need to call 911 or the police to get in contact with a law enforcement agent. So, he of course called his brother, but that brother told him to call 911. And while Aaron was scared of how this may impact Denise, he was also afraid of what might happen if he didn't reach out to those who were trained in this type of thing. I mean, he's an average citizen. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how criminals think. So he follows the advice of his law enforcement brother and reaches out to 911. By the time that the police do actually get there, it's been more than nine hours since the attack had taken place. The first question that Aaron was asked probably set a pretty negative tone for the rest of the investigation. And though I have to say, to an extent, the question was, you know, a logical question, but the spirit or the intent of the question probably was not. It was not asked in a manner appropriate of someone who may have been a victim of an attack. The question was, were you on drugs? Now, I, when I say that, we can see to an extent why this might be asked, is Aaron had been under the effects of drugs, though not taken willingly. So Aaron did reply that, yes, the kidnappers had drugged him, so he was truthfully under the influence of drugs. But the police are looking at this externally, and... They're not under that haze of drugs that Aaron is under. They, they are probably looking at this as a motive, possibly, or maybe even what you know, precipitated a crime, believing that maybe Aaron and Denise had been involved in drugs and something happened, whether it be money being owed, an accidental overdose, anything like that. So this was the very first question that was asked. But... There were cameras in the house. I admit when I was reading the narrative from what Aaron was saying, I wondered if the whole camera thing was something the kidnappers were saying to you know, make Aaron believe they were always watching. But no, there were actual cameras in the home left by the kidnapper. So 
I'm kind of wondering where the police went with this um, after Aaron said that they had been drugged. But then the police started to focus on the hours between the kidnapping and contacting police and why it took so long. But that really had already been answered in the fact that he had been drugged. And while some of us may think that we can overcome the effects of a drug, that if our loved one's life is at stake, we're going to fight through it, it just doesn't happen that way. You know, if it's a strong sedative, especially if you're not used to taking anything like that, it's going to knock you out. And there's only so much that a person can do to overcome those effects. It's very, very minimal. They might be able to push one more button with a lot of effort, say if they're trying to call someone, but it's not something that would be able to you know, just overcome and do a monumental amount of things without just sleeping it off. Something that did also not fall into Aaron's favor was that there were some beer bottles around which, you know, he just kind of gathered them until he took them out to recycle. So the police did see alcohol in the house. So they're probably starting to just think, okay, this is not an actual kidnapping. Um, they asked him if he had been partying because of the beer bottles, and it really was going along a route of they did not believe him. Aaron's car was also missing, so again, looking at this from the outside, as someone walking into this scene, you know, it they're having this look or an idea that it was possibly drugs, alcohol, or a lot of alcohol, um, and someone looks like he's been on drugs, he has a missing vehicle, there's probably going to be an immediate assumption of murder or at least manslaughter. And again, it's just trying to look at this from all perspectives. And we know what Aaron has said happened, but now we're looking at it from the angle of police coming in to this home and trying to figure out what is actually true, looking at evidence and trying to evaluate Aaron's story. Now, you know, they're, they're probably looking at it in terms of possibly a fight that went wrong, anger that, you know, boiled and boiled until it boiled over into rage, something like that. And they really used Aaron's car being missing as part of it. And, you know, it sounded like they probably thought there was evidence within the car. And while, okay... I would be going off on a completely different tangent on this, um, on this case. If I had been told the car was missing, I would almost wonder if after having some drinks or having drugs, was it possible that Aaron had been in a car accident and Denise had been critically or fatally injured? So that's why his car was not there. It was down a ravine or something like that, and Denise was nowhere to be found. That's a possibility. But again, police were more looking at a domestic dispute that carried over into violence and eventually death. That was their take on it. I guess my take on it was a little bit unconventional, but my thought is, if you're somewhere, how are you getting home? So, you know, even... If something occurred somewhere else, why 
is your car not there? Would there be that much evidence that, you know, you were that scared to have the police go through it? If there wasn't any blood, you know, then any hair or skin cells, anything like that could easily be explained as she was his girlfriend. But, you know, again, I kind of looked at it in the way of how did he get home if he didn't have a car? And for him to leave his car somewhere, there would have to be an extreme amount of evidence there for him to consider, you know, just walking away and trying to get back to his home in some other manner. And this is where I'm going to end the episode for today. I'm not even halfway through the events. Um, so next episode will probably be just as long. I won't need to go through as much of the very beginning intro as I did today. So hopefully that will cut down on some time. Um, so I, again, will get the next episode out sooner rather than later. Um, because I don't want there to be too long of a time period in separation of the two. Um, it, it's not going to, the second part is not going to go out within the next couple of days. I do want to have a little bit of a spread in between to make sure I get to all of the editing. So look for the second episode in about five days or so. Um, right now it's April 5th. So, you know, probably around the 10th or 11th, um, because I may not even be able to get this one out on the 5th, but I'm going to try my best. If you do want to contact me about any possible cases or anything like that, um, my contact information will be in the description as well as the sources that I've used. Please, if you enjoy the content, like, share, rate, comment, whatever your apps will allow you to do. And I appreciate any feedback and I will talk to you all very soon in the next episode. Bye.